A pandemic update ahead of the booster shot rollout. Tomorrow's assessment is, is the is a third dose, a booster dose, is it safe and is it effective? I'm Jade Hindman, Maureen Kavanaugh is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego County moves to allow home kitchens to open for business. This proposal couldn't come at a better time. It absolutely needed in our communities in San Diego. And hear about a Mexican wrestling league's effort to branch out into a new generation of fans. Plus, our summer music series continues. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. A recent CDC report found that if you are not vaccinated, you are 11 times more likely to die from COVID as compared to those who are vaccinated. Here in San Diego County, 57 additional COVID deaths were reported this week. That brings us to a total of 3,983 lives lost in our community due to the coronavirus. We know that the typical two-shot regimen of Pfizer or Moderna and J&J's one-shot decrease the risk of hospitalization and death. But what about the question of booster shots? Who should get one? How does that impact those who haven't been vaccinated yet? And how important is it in the fight against coronavirus? Joining us to discuss this is Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer advises the FDA, CDC, and the state on vaccinations. Welcome back, Dr. Sawyer. It's great to join you. As I mentioned, the county reported 57 new deaths this week. How does that compare to previous weeks and previous surges? Well, we've certainly been at that level in the past. It looks like we're just starting on the downslope of this most recent peak. So we have had higher numbers in the past, but the deaths typically lag a little bit behind the cases. So I'm not sure we're over the worst of it yet. How do the demographics of those we're seeing die from COVID in this surge compared to earlier surges like the one we saw during the winter? Well, still the majority of people who are getting severely ill and dying of COVID are are elderly. Although we do see serious disease in younger adults and, and even in children. You know, we the demographics of people who are getting vaccinated pretty much predict the demographics of who's going to be suffering hospitalization or even death from COVID. Because as you mentioned, the vaccine is very effective at keeping you out of the hospital and dying. And so there are subgroups of our population that remain under immunized. And those are the people who are getting sick. You know, as as we've talked about many times on this show, and you just mentioned, deaths from COVID are a lagging indicator of how widespread COVID is in the community. Overall cases and hospitalizations have been slowly declining over the last few weeks. Could that mean we're coming out of the Delta surge at all? I think it does mean that. You know, this has been a, now our third big peak, and, and the previous two sort of followed the kind of shape or curve that we're seeing now with a gradual decline after the maximum level. So 
I'm hopeful that we're over the, the immediate problem, but you know, we will have another surge unless we get a higher percentage of our population immunized. With this Delta surge and in-person school being back in session, are we seeing more cases and hospitalizations among children than previously? We are seeing more cases in children. Part of that certainly may do, be due to getting back to school, and there have been some outbreaks in schools, generally relatively small. But it, And we were concerned that getting back to school would raise the overall community level, but so far that hasn't happened. Part of the reason we're seeing more cases in kids is, is simply the fact that younger kids under age 12, as we know, are not yet able to be vaccinated. So they're all completely vulnerable to the infection. You are on a panel that will advise the FDA on booster shots. That panel will be meeting tomorrow. First, how do booster shots work? Uh, They're not like uh, flu shots that are tailored to that year's flu season, right? Once your immune system has been exposed to an infectious agent or a vaccine, it remembers that, that agent or vaccine. And when you're exposed to it again, it takes off with a really vigorous response and raises your level of immune protection. Usually we measure that with antibodies. And so the booster dose that we're talking about tomorrow is to get people who've already received one or two doses of vaccine and are fully immunized, and then give them another dose six or eight months later to raise up their immune response. That's a different approach than we do with influenza. With influenza, we partly are boosting the immune response, but we're also changing the vaccine to match the strain that's circulating in the community. Now, we may get there with Delta, with COVID or SARS-CoV-2 as well, because as we know, it is changing. The Delta is an example of that change. So the companies are also preparing new versions of the vaccine the way we do with influenza. What do you anticipate will happen at tomorrow's panel meeting? The role of FDA, which is what this advisory committee uh, is for, is to assess the safety and the effectiveness of the vaccine. That's a different question than who should get the vaccine, whether it should go to everybody or only to subsets of the population. So tomorrow's assessment is, is is a third dose, a booster dose, is it safe and is it effective? And I'm still reviewing the pre-material that we've been given ahead of the meeting, and there will be several hours worth of presentations at the meeting and discussion around what the data shows. You know, booster shots, they are approved for those who are immunocompromised, and I've heard about them being recommended for healthcare workers and older adults. But do you think the majority of people will need them at all? That's a very good question, and I don't really have an answer to that. Uh, We're still trying to look at what the impact of booster doses would be on transmission of infection. We've already said that once you've got the primary vaccine, you're pretty well protected from getting put in the hospital and dying, but you can still transmit the infection. So if we learn that booster doses cut down that transmission or eliminate it completely, then we might give them to everybody so we can get over with this pandemic. Uh, Beyond whether booster shots are effective or safe, what about the question of booster shots making vaccines less available to those who have yet to be vaccinated, whether within the U.S. or abroad? Uh, I I don't think that boosters are going to have any impact on availability in the United States. There is plenty of vaccine. 
The reason people are, are not fully vaccinated is not because they don't have access or, or availability. That's very different in other parts of the world. And part of the answer to your question is, you know, what would be the impact of uh, not giving boosters in the United States and distributing those vaccines elsewhere? How much would that impact the worldwide supply? And I don't have the answer to that. And fortunately, that's not going to be the point of discussion at tomorrow's meeting. That's up to CDC to decide from a policy perspective what makes the most sense from a, from the public health viewpoint. This most recent surge isn't anywhere near the one we had last winter with 2.1 million San Diegans now fully vaccinated. I mean, are we in a good position to avoid one this upcoming winter? That's a great question. It depends on a couple of things. It depends on whether we can get the rest of our population better immunized, the, the folks who've yet to get immunized. It depends a little on what the virus does and whether it continues to change and new variants come up. And it depends on whether people are still uh, diligent in wearing masks in indoor settings and distancing when they can and being careful not to go to work or school when they're sick. If all of those things happen, I think we're in great shape for avoiding another huge peak. And again, I'm encouraged by the fact that so far, getting kids back into school has not created a big surge in our community. I've been speaking with Dr. Mark Sawyer, an infectious disease specialist with Rady Children's Hospital and UC San Diego. Dr. Sawyer advises the FDA, CDC, and the state on vaccines. Dr. Sawyer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Microenterprise home kitchen operations, or MECOs, is a concept that will allow people to legally sell food from their home kitchens here in San Diego County. The plan was passed by the state in 2018, and permits are granted on a county-by-county basis. San Diego County Supervisors Nora Vargas and Joel Anderson proposed permitting home kitchens in the county, and yesterday the plan received a 3-0 vote by the San Diego County Board of Supervisors to start the process. Joining me is Supervisor Nora Vargas, and an owner of a local home kitchen, Diana Tapiz. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Happy to be here. Hello. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. Indeed. So, Supervisor Vargas, I'll start with you. Why did you and Supervisor Anderson decide to bring this proposal to the board? Well, I was thrilled uh, to be able to introduce this board letter uh, with Supervisor Anderson because of what uh, these micro uh, enterprise home kitchens do for our community. Really, it allows entrepreneurs to launch, you know, launch their home enterprise uh, by reducing overhead and some of the barriers that impede most people from starting a business. And so, you know, I think it's really important right now uh, that you know we we have opportunities for our pandemics. Um, these folks really represent an informal food economy that have been present in our communities for years, but they really boomed uh, during the pandemic. And so now we want them to come out and make sure that they're legal and that they're able to have these home-based businesses that really create a more inclusive and equitable food economy. And what are some of the benefits of this proposal being approved now? Well, first and foremost, we're directing the chief administrative officer to come back to the board within 120 days to create an ordinance to authorize these kitchens uh, to be uh, available, right? 
It also uh, is going to provide an opportunity to do outreach and, and receive input from community stakeholders. Um, and it also is going to uh, create an opportunity for educational programs on how to operate one of these micro enterprises. And so, you know, one of the biggest issues right now is that there's a cost significant barrier for someone who's starting it off in the food industry, right? It has to, you have to pay about $400,000. It's about the average startup for a a cost of a brick and mortar restaurant. And if you want to get a food truck, it ranges around $50,000. And annual rent for a commercial kitchen is about $45,000. And so what this does, uh, it allows um, our community members to do this from the comfort of their home and to be able to ensure that they're providing um, safe and healthy and delicious food uh, for our communities. What's really important to emphasize too is that we need to lift up these non-traditional food entrepreneurs uh, because usually they're women, immigrants, people of color, uh, people who have historically faced barriers. And the fact that they're breaking these barriers to become entrepreneurs in their own right, uh, I think is this is what the what we want for our communities as we're thinking about economic prosperity um, and opportunity. So I'm excited about this initiative. I'm excited that uh, both Supervisor Anderson and I were able to introduce it. And I'm looking forward to the benefits that it will bring to our community. And Diana, what are your thoughts on this proposal and how will this impact you personally? This proposal couldn't come at a better time. It absolutely needed in our communities in San Diego. A lot of people thrived during the pandemic through selling food in their home. Personally, I didn't even know um, my food was definitely a need in the community. Um, and through the pandemic, not only did is it proven that a lot of people are doing it out there, it, it's we need this ordinance in order for us to come out and legally be able to to do this without being afraid of anybody knocking on our door, without being afraid of anybody coming and taking our equipment from the health department. It gives us comfortability that we're doing the right thing, serving safe food and following city guidelines. Do you anticipate it increasing the amount of business you get? Yes. Absolutely. We've worked in a commercial kitchen before and in the commercial kitchen, we were selling a lot of food. Uh, We know definitely that working from home isn't going to work for us for a long time. But right now, immediately, it lets us open our doors again and feed our customers. And Supervisor Vargas, what are the steps to start Amico? Well, right now what we're doing is we're making sure uh, that folks are able to have uh, the the licenses from the county. And so all of this information will be available uh, once the ordinance is actually uh, brought back to our county staff. We're really looking into all of the details at this time. But, you know, what's really important to note is that there's about 60 or so meals that you can do a week, right? Um, About 10 a day. So, um, it'll really provide folks with an opportunity uh, to be able to f- provide, you know, any type of, of food or, or desserts or party snacks for mm-hmm. their friends and their neighbors without, uh, cha- you know, being faced with any challenges. And Diana, you know, people have been long selling food out of their home kitchens. Why will you and why do you think others should go through the process of getting this permit? Most importantly, food safety. The city has it as a guideline for a reason. And I believe that everybody should follow these guidelines and get these permits, not only to be able to function as a legal business, but also to learn the fundamentals of food safety. 
Had we not gone ourselves through all the cert safety certifications, we would have never learned the depth of that it takes to keep food safe uh, by city ordinance and by state law. And Supervisor Vargas, how many counties in California have authorized these MECOs? My understanding is that there are at least uh, two that have already authorized it in Riverside and San Bernardino and have been very successful. And so, uh, of course, it's a state law and, and now it's up to us as counties to make sure that we're implementing it. And like I stated, we're working closely with our local uh, councils, uh, city councils, to make sure that that uh, we're partners as we are developing the ordinance. And I'm happy to say that some of the, particularly the cities in South County have already uh, expressed interest in being partners in this process. And quick question too, once someone has one of these licensed home kitchens, is there a process for how they will be monitored going forward? Well, that's the beauty of this ordinance that we're creating. And the, uh, the CAO is coming back to us in 120 days to the board to really share with us what this is going to look like. And I am going to be looking at things like food safety, uh, permit, education. Outreach and education for me is really important because sometimes people don't even know that it exists. I want to make sure that it's in language, right, so that we can have it in the different uh, languages so that people can have access to it. And then I want to make sure that it's not too costly for folks to be able to have these permits and make it accessible to everyone. So, you know, we're, we're looking forward to hearing back from our CAO and we're happy to come back and share all those details once uh, we officially have the ordinance in place. I've been speaking with San Diego County Supervisor Nora Vargas and an owner of a local home kitchen, Diana Tapiz. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for everything. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Kavanaugh is off. Governor Gavin Newsom has until October 10th to decide whether to sign a bill that softens production quotas for warehouse workers. Assembly Bill 701 is widely seen as targeted at Amazon, which runs more than 60 warehouses across the state. But that's not all, as KQED's Rachel Myro reports. Behind Amazon's big yellow place your order button is a vast network of warehouses filled with close to a million logistics employees across the country, 40,000 in the Inland Empire alone. But if the tech-obsessed retailer is famous for using robots, sensors, and software to maximize productivity, it's also infamous for driving warehouse workers to the exit doors with repetitive stress injuries and, well, stress. How did you come up with this rate? Was it based on what your understanding of what the human body can do? Or is it based on what you think that you need to get through in order to make a profit this quarter? 
That's Shaharier Kazji, head of the Warehouse Worker Resource Center in Ontario. San Bernardino and Riverside counties together serve as the cargo throughput for much of America west of Chicago. Trucks and trains move what comes through the ports of L.A. and Long Beach to the Inland Empire, where imported goods are redistributed in warehouses onto long-haul trucks for transportation east. Amazon's rivals, like Walmart and Home Depot, are nipping at the tech titan's heels, eager to adopt its algorithmically driven strategies to maximize productivity. It's not that those companies can't afford to do the right thing. It's that they've figured out what they can get away with. And if they're not held accountable, that's what they'll continue to do. Cosgy sees AB 701 as a compromise between union organizers and big business. Amazon declined to comment on the legislation, but a spokeswoman wrote the company abides by state and federal laws, including paid breaks and ready access to toilet facilities. What's sitting on Governor Newsom's desk would prohibit the kinds of company policies like ever-shifting production quotas or time-off task penalties that psychologically pressure workers to forego their state-mandated breaks or wait till their shift is over to use the bathroom. The problem with existing law is that, I mean, in general, in California and nationwide, is that it, it just hasn't kept up with the state of technological change. Beth Catellius is research director at the University of Illinois at Chicago's Center for Urban Economic Development. She takes particular interest in the way the bill the first of its kind in the nation, requires warehouse operators to disclose quotas and work speed metrics to employees and government agencies. Right now, we just it's kind of a black box. And I think the case of Amazon offers us pretty ample evidence that we can't just rely on companies to weigh these costs and benefits and act in the interest of workers. Someone else has to do that, and that is traditionally what government's role has been. The question above and beyond whether the governor signs AB 701 is how committed California regulators are to that oversight role. With more than 200,000 people in the state working in warehouses, it's not a small question. That was KQED's Rachel Myro for the California Report. If you're looking for the high-flying theatrics and over-the-top flair of Lucha Libre Mexican wrestling, you don't have to go south of the border to see it in person. In fact, you only have to go as far as Logan Heights, where a local brewery is exposing a new generation of fans to the traditional spectacle. Take a listen. San Diego Union Tribune reporter Andrea Lopez Villafania joins us now with more. Andrea, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about Lucha Libre and its popularity here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, Lucha Libre is huge. I mean, many of us who are Latinos, we instantly feel a sense of you know recognizing it whenever we see it, right? Luchadores wear these really colorful masks and uh, sometimes these really interesting costumes. And they have these really elaborate kind of performances in the ring, right? It's, it's in a way entertainment. It can be a little theatrical. You have like the good guy and the bad guy. 
But yeah, they they have like really amazing tricks that they do. And it's a lot, it's a lot of freestyle wrestling, but, but it can be really awesome and fun to watch. And where are these matches being held? Yeah, so right now, um, the organization that is um, really introducing them into the neighborhood of Logan Heights and hopefully expanding to other areas of San Diego is U.S. Baja Stars. And right now, they're taking place in Logan Heights at Mujeres Brew House. Before that, they were in Otay Mesa. Uh, they wanted to be closer to the border, but because of COVID, they haven't really been able to, you know, come up with some sort of venue that can accommodate them. So now they're doing them outdoors at, at this brewery. Is this an expensive event to go to? No, absolutely not. So that's a big part of their mission. So these events can can range from like thirty to a thousand dollars, especially uh, when you're talking about like WWE events. But this organization has really made it a point to make these wrestling matches accessible for people who maybe you know normally wouldn't have enough money to pay for something like this. Uh, so they're about twenty five dollars for adults, and I believe it's ten dollars for children. Tell us a little bit about the wrestlers themselves. I mean, how do they get drawn into wrestling? What's the allure of being a luchador? Yeah, so um, I spoke to a couple that day, one of their most recent matches, and and two guys are really interesting. I actually highlighted them in my story. Um, of course, there's a sense of mystery there because they, they don't use their actual names and they never take off their masks in public when they're at a wrestling match. But one of them, Romeo, he, he grew up in Tijuana and he would go to these wrestling matches with his dad. And they were like, he told me that this was like a date that he would go on his dad with. And um, so it had a very big significance to him. So ever since he was little, he wanted to be a luchador. But his dad said, you know what? First, you got to get a career. So he's actually an attorney in Tijuana. He has his own law practice. And he started training. Uh, he really enjoyed fitness. And he always had a love for, for lucha libre. And he made a promise to his dad that one day he'd be a luchador. So um, he became one. And uh, he's actually really, really fun to watch. And um, yeah, he's, he's still an attorney. So by the day he has clients and then in the afternoons he's in the gym practicing these like really elaborate tricks and then on the weekends he's you know flying off to different states and and um competing in these matches one of the other guys i interviewed he lives in spring valley and um he's now a professional luchador this is all he does he doesn't have another side job this is everything he does and he's also um you know he grew up with with somewhat of a love for Lucha Libre, he grew up around it and he was kind of getting into trouble as a young boy and sport was kind of a way for him to distract himself from from those uh, temptations. And so Lucha Libre kind of put him on the right track. <laughs> wow. Um, given that, I'm guessing that for many of the luchadors themselves, you know, this isn't a full-time job, but could it be or or is it more of a passion for the people behind the masks? Yeah, it's definitely a a full-time job. I mean, most of the guys that were there had kind of, you know, a side gig. Some of them are Uber drivers, some of them are construction workers, some of them are line cooks, you know, different things that, you know, the one I spoke with was an attorney. Um, But it could definitely be a full-time profession. Uh, The the fighter I spoke with, uh, the King Rey Misterio, he, this is all he does. During the pandemic, he did, he ended up getting into construction for a bit because a lot of events were canceled. Um, but yeah, that he lives off Lucha Libre. This is everything he, he does every day. He travels. Um, he was in Oklahoma, I think, the week after the match that I, I covered. And so it's definitely lucrative business. These luchadores get paid to attend to the matches. So, um, you know, they, they can have uh, different deals with different promotion companies. And it could be a, it could be a career for some of them. Of course, a career that 
you know, is dependent on them being healthy and on them not getting injured, um, on them getting enough jobs. So it could definitely be a stressful job. (laughs) So what kind of significance do these events have within the Mexican American community? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, they kind of bring you back to, to maybe a match you might've attended as a child. So many people there, it just felt like you were surrounded by like giant kids, you know, they, they were screaming and, and they were booing sometimes. And I almost felt like at some point they were going to throw things, but it's just this huge energy. And um, it's very common to have these matches in, in, in Mexico and see them as something that it's like what you do on the weekends, right? Something you do with, with your dad, maybe, or your uncle. Um, so for a lot of people, it's, it's a sense of, you know, taking them back to those memories or feeling like they're back at home in Mexico because, you know, people are uh, shaking water bottles with beans inside them, or they're drinking beers, or they're booing uh, one of the wrestlers, or being crushed by the wrestlers flying out of the ring and flying into the crowd. So it, it's a lot of energy. And I think it gives a lot of people a sense of belonging. And you write that this kind of theatrical wrestling, both here and in Mexico, I mean, think WWE, right? <laughs> Hadn't always been taken seriously. Uh, is that changing? Yeah, that is. So I spoke with a professor, actually, she had an interesting story. She, you know, is working on her thesis, and she wanted to learn a little bit more about luchadores. So she spent a lot of time um, actually training as a luchadora herself. And, you know, just interviewing a bunch of different luchadores. And at that time, it was in the 90s, in the early 90s, she she said that luchadores just felt like they, that they were a big part of Mexican culture, but they just weren't looked at that way. They weren't recognized that way. And for a long time, they, they really advocated for themselves. And it wasn't until later when, when um, you know, Mexico City de- declared something special for luchadores. And, you know, as these organizations got larger, I think people started to recognize the significance of, of this sport and tradition as well. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Andrea Lopez Villafania. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The character of Candyman was created by Clive Barker and brought to vivid life by Tony Todd in a 1992 film. Now he's reimagined by filmmaker Nia DaCosta for a new Candyman movie that hits video on demand this Friday. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando spoke with UC Riverside professor of media and cultural studies John Jennings at the recent AfroCon about the layers of meaning in the new Candyman film. So, John, I know you are a huge fan of horror and also specialize in looking to black horror. So I wanted to talk about Candyman, the new one, and a little bit about the old one. Have you ever heard of Candyman? No. His right hand is sawn off. He has a hook jammed in the bloody stump. And if you look in the mirror and you say his name five times, he'll appear behind you, breathing down your neck. You want to try it? The original uh, Candyman film, which was the screenplay and director, is Bernard Rose. He took elements from Clive Barker's short story, The Forbidden. It's very different. Like, for, for The Forbidden really is a more about class dynamics. You know, there, it's a very similar setup where you have like a grad student, Helen Lyle, who's doing uh, research on graffiti of this particular area. And what Bernard Rose does is he transplants that discourse 
to America and he decides to have it talk about race, right? And so he creates this amalgam, if you will, of like the Hookman, Bloody Mary, the game, the Bloody Mary game, the original forbidden short story, and an actual murder that happened in Cabrini Green which uh, of uh, Ruthie Ann McCoy, which was in 1987. So he actually took elements of that and put it into this Candyman uh, film that he made with Tony Todd. The other urban legend, of course, that he, that he mixes in there is race, right? Because it's, it's, a, it's a story, it's a fiction, right? And so he mixes all these things in there as well. Now, Jordan Peele and Nia DaCosta kind of reimagined Candyman through more of a black lens. Mm-hmm. So what did you feel was kind of the most significant change that they made? Well, I think one of the most significant ones was the fact that they took the singular story of Daniel Robertine and they actually kind of posited Candyman more as a mantle. Or, or as um, cause the Coleman Domingo's character, Billy Burke, kind of references, he's a hive. It's almost like you need a, a systemic like Avenger to kind of fight against systemic racism. You know what I'm saying? Because he's he becomes like more than one person. And so I think that was a really interesting idea because it doesn't like disrupt the original story. It actually adds to more of a mythology, which I thought was really interesting and a very uh, complex notion about like just how race is kind of played out in our country. But a story like that, a pain like that, lasts forever. That's Candyman. Well, you mentioned, you know, how art like science fiction or films can kind of distance you from certain things and allow you to look at it. And what's interesting in the film too is that the violence against the black characters is mostly depicted through these shadow puppets which kind of removes it one step further from normally this would be depicted as live action actors Mm -hmm. with you know violence being inflicted upon these characters so it seemed like there was an interesting way to kind of distance you from some of that violence without letting you forget how horrific it is yeah i totally agree i I use the allegory of um, perseus killing medusa because you remember like the greek mythology or the greek myth uh, medusa is like this horrific creature, once a beautiful woman who was cursed by the gods, and now she turns people into stone when you look at her, right? So the spectacle of her is what kills you to a certain degree, right? And Perseus kills her with a, a mirrored shield, right? So he's looking at her reflection and not directly at her. In some ways, DaCosta uses a similar method where she kind of, as you're saying, like she kind of like undercuts the spectacle to a certain degree and it removes you to a certain degree. You can be more objective about it. Now, a lot of horror fans really didn't like that because they want to see the gore, they want to see this, you know. But if you're in this country now and you're black, you know, you turn on CNN and you see that kind of brutalization, right? So, you know, to a certain degree, you don't, you don't, get, to, you don't get to be black in America and not see yourself as victims sometimes. So I think what she does is by distancing uh, us from it and actually using these beautiful shadow puppets, um, that's really horrific to me. You know, that's actually the stuff that makes, because it, it leaves so much to the imagination, you know. So the first film, I thought it was interesting because the tagline for the film is, we dare you to say his name. And now the tagline says, say it. Mm -hmm. And then there's a hashtag for tell everyone. And I just want to know, like, how do you think this is playing off of kind of Black Lives Matters and this sensibility of say their names, remember who the victims are, and kind of transforming this Candyman legend into something that feels very contemporary and of the moment now? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very good question. Yeah, because the first one really is, it's talking about race and representation, but it also still centers Helen, 
you know, as the main kind of protagonist. And she becomes like a really active ally and definitely like she gives her life to save this little black boy. And then of course the black community reflects that. They actually come to her grave, they give her this hook, what have you, and then she becomes an urban legend, right? In the second film, they shift this lens. This is taking directly from like some of the chants that are from the Black Lives Matter movement about saying the names, uh, repairing erasure, because that's what the character's doing too. Like, do not forget me. This is what happened to us. You know, say my name and actually like, and see what happens, that kind of thing. Because he's still an angry spirit, <laughs> you, know, but, you know, but it's also like a, uh, a sense of reverence for the people who've been killed in this fashion. Tell Everyone, of course, is about really, really tapping into the idea of like oral culture. remembering through speaking, that kind of thing, like passing along these stories because, you know, these urban legends were like, you know, they were folk tales. Well, and also there's a point where uh, the Burke character says, I think it's when he's recounting what he saw in the laundry room, Mm -hmm. and he says, like, I saw the true face of horror then. Killed him right there on the spot. And to me, it's kind of a little bit like Stephen King's It. It's like the really scary thing is the real world violence, you know, the abuse the kids go through in it, and then in this, it's the fact that the police kill this innocent man in front of this little child. And the supernatural stuff on a certain level is far less terrifying. That's exactly right. And that's what I'm saying is like, yes, I got chills when you said that. Because that's exactly what I thought, too. I was like, oh, man, when he said the, the true face of horror, he was talking about the swarm, the police swarm, right? He's like doubly traumatized because of that. And now he realizes, well, in order for me to really fight this vicious, huge thing, I have to create something even darker, you know, and be a part of it. I was like, what I would have loved to have seen is actually the hive speaking to him. And do you have any like final words or uh, about the film or anything that you would like to encourage people to think about when they go see it or when they exit the theater after having seen it? Going with an open mind, but also understand that this is not like, this isn't Jason. You know, mm-hmm. this isn't like the first movie. It's very thought-provoking. It's a slow burn. It's, it's like, it's an art house horror film to a certain degree, too. It has that, that kind of meatiness to it. And I think it's more effective that way. And it's more creepy. I think that people want to be shown things and not have to fill in the gaps. And, you know, sometimes it's best for you to do that, you know, in order to get it. But it definitely bears rewatching as well. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the new Candyman. Oh, thank you so much. And this has been fun. I love talking about this movie. <laughs> so. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Professor John Jennings. Go to kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie tomorrow to hear their full interview on Beth's podcast. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. 
Raw expression and artistic freedom is rare in this world where everything from music to social media is monetized and music untouched by the gears of capitalism left to the purest form of creativity is hard to find. But if you find it, what would that sound like? Well, Scrapes is a legendary experimental electronic duo who create on their own terms. You can't find their music on traditional streaming platforms, and they don't play traditional instruments. Their live shows are a chaotic explosion of chopped break beats and alien noise that push the speakers within an inch of their life. Scrapes joins us today, but let's begin with their song, Sabacus. Definitely hear the jazz behind the chaos there. That is Scrapes with Sabacus. And I want to introduce Scrapes, Tension, a.k.a. John Calzo, and Psycho Pop, a.k.a. David Lampley. Thanks for joining us on the KPBS Summer Music Series. Oh, thank you so thanks much. For, thanks for having us on. So first question, how did you meet and start Scrapes? We met in high school. We had mutual friends that were in the music also, and- David was uh, at the time producing like hip hop stuff and, and rapping and I was DJing and I did some scratches for his album and we just connected through music and had like the same wavelength of creating crazy uh, sounds and chaos stuff. <laughs> so all this, this chaotic sound, I mean, what is your process? Just whatever we could find that could plug into the amplifiers and amplified noise pretty much. It's just all freestyle. Uh, jamming out it's like free jazz basically hmm. so what instruments do you use to make your sounds um i use like a little synthesizer i have a couple synthesizers and a lot of effects and found electronic things that can be plugged in or amplified yeah i, I use modular synthesizers samplers mostly just capture sound and try to chop up the sounds to yeah. create rhythms and noise Field recordings, reel-to-reels, tape decks, old records. Nice. I mean, it's it's you use a, this process called circuit bending. I mean, tell me about that. Yeah, circuit bending is just taking like any instrument, toy, anything that makes sound that's battery powered or electronic powered. But I just open it up and just poke around in the inside of it and see if it alters the sound, makes anything sound crazy, and destroy the original sound.
have to know, like, what are your live shows like? Mm. Improvisational. Improv. Yeah. Sometimes, like, some people don't understand it, you know, just because we're just going up there, just feeding off of uh, the day, the, the surroundings, day. Yeah. the show. Yeah. Usually it's just like a big wall of sound going on the whole time. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. yeah, we just make a wall of sound until something breaks through. Then we go off of it. Our friend Sumarch, this guy Ganja Sufi, he always says it's like scaring someone and then giving a hug and telling me it's all right, then pushing them off you, and then like making them laugh, then then you're like friends after the show. I don't know all sorts of different feelings, I guess. Hmm. What are your roles? What specific instruments do you play? What sounds are each of you responsible for? Me, uh, I mostly do mostly all the percussion duties and some of the ambient noise stuff going on. I mostly just use my my modular system for that. And um, Psychopop, David uses his synth keyboards. So it's mostly just like drums and synth the whole time. Yeah, like yeah. a lot of bass sounds on there. And- yeah. Very minimal, but like it sounds heavy. Where do you get these crazy sounds? Sometimes we use a tape loop on a reel-to-reel. I have like a machine that's for to take a hearing test and it makes all these crazy sounds out of it. We'll throw some delay and some distortion on it. Yeah. We even it's like kind of different every yeah, time. Yeah, just yeah, everything's different every time we perform. It's like sometimes we'll take like little tape decks or like um, a little radio. Little speak and spell or whatever, you know, or a Game Boy. Game Boy. (laughs) Yeah. Anything. Yeah. Man, so so how do people respond to your music? I think people were scared at first, but it seems like people through the years got the idea we're trying to do, and uh, hopefully they're feeling it. But it's all right if they don't. Yeah, this is what we do. Yeah, we just have fun every time yeah. we play. Yeah, so. we play shows, and we don't even look up. Like, <laughs> we're just we look up, and we'll mess up because we're just like in the zone. <laughs> so what? How does that? How does that work? How does this? The sound man, they, he doesn't even get it right. The sound guy probably hates us. Usually they don't get it. So we used to just bring our own sound because they'd always turn us down and we're turning up and they think we're going to burn the sound system out. But we just bring our own. So if we break it, I'm not mad. I'm like, I feel like I won or something if I burn the speaker out. (laughs) We played a show one time and we knocked the lights out of the ceiling. imagine that like the crowd's reaction is different too like you've toured europe many times i mean how's the crowd reaction different there than from here in the u.s some of our shows in europe i feel like people are dancing and moving and just hanging on to every snare and bass line in america it seems like they're more just observing and trying to see what we're doing studying or something well like in other countries they don't really 
stare too much at the, uh, at the equipment. They're just mostly just feeling the vibe of the music, yeah. dancing around or having yeah. a good time. Yeah, it's really cool to watch. With that, I want to take a listen to Heavy Machinery. So that's a very lively. So those overseas audiences, they're up on two feet dancing when that's going on. Yeah, usually like the energy gets a lot. It gets people are swaying and like people go to the spots to just get loose. It's a real big honor to be a part of that, you know. So what's it like being on stage and and improvising your music? It's kind of free. I'm, maybe there's a little bit of pressure, but. We don't really have an expectation. We just want to get loud and kind of abrasive and hear some heavy drums. And we're just kind of locked in the zone. And if people are feeling it, that's like really yeah. special. But if people walk away, it's it's cool. It's not for everybody. Yeah. As long as the sound system sounds good, we'll, we'll have a good time on stage. Yeah, exactly. That's all that counts. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, you know, cause it's not like you've, you've practiced. You know, I mean, this is just like it's raw when you're up on stage. And so how much does the audience's reaction um, impact you? Oh yeah. If, if the audience is really feeling it, then. Yeah. Whoa. then we It's like, we can't stop playing. Yeah. When everyone, everything's going perfect. And the audience is like the energy's so high that we could just like pause and everyone will pause and then we'll start playing again. It's just having that control is. Yeah. It feels like crazy. We, yeah. That control the energy feels like yeah we just become like one with the audience with your do-it-yourself approach and the way you create music and the moment and never repeat the same thing what is it about that as an artist that's really just kept you going for over two decades i guess it just never gets old there's always something like a different rhythm or we also like create like our own records late cut records so we also just try to find new ways of um designing those records too whether it's like homemade picture disc records or like weird shapes 
So yeah. that's what kind of makes it more exciting for us as well. Because we're, we're just like, we we're, just, yeah, I feel like we're just artists. Like we'll make our own t-shirts, our own record covers, our own tapes, uh, our own flyers book our own shows we just have control over every part of the process and i don't know how many other people could say they do that i feel like we're pure artists and it feels good to be able to say that i feel like i can honestly say that i've been speaking with scrapes members tension and psycho pop thank you both for joining me thank you so much thanks for having us on yeah good time Grape's new album, Witchcraft 2, is out now. Go to kpbs.org slash summer music series for a video interview. PBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.